Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is a Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we're welcoming Seamus McGraw to read from his new book, From a, Taller Ta- from a Taller Tower, The Rise of the American Mass Shooter. He'll be in conversation with the parents of Telefanos. Before I introduce them, I just want to r- remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickups and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. We also have right now limited in-store browsing, so make sure you bring your masks and social distance, but come on by. Love to have you. Seamus McGraw is a journalist and frequent contributor to the New York Times op-ed page, as well as the Huffington Post, Playboy, Popular Mechanics, and Fox Latino. He is the author of The End of of Country, Dispatches from the Frack Zone, Betting the Farm on a Drought, Stories from the Front Lines of Climate Change, and A Thirsty Land, The Fight for Waters in Texas. Today, he'll be in conversation with Mark and Susan Arfanos. So welcome, Seamus, Mark, and Susan. I'm so excited to have you. This is going to be a great interview. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. No problem. And Seamus, do you have a reading for us today? Yeah, I am going to read a little bit. Perfect. We'll take it away. This is from uh, chapter... This is from a chapter called The Fog of War in Peacetime. There's a wonderful phrase, the fog of war. What the fog of war means is war is so complex, it's beyond the ability of the human mind to comprehend all the variables. Our judgment, our understanding are not adequate. That was said by former US Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. You'd think by now we'd have a word for it, word to describe the way the horror, the trauma, the confusion, and the misconceptions spiderweb out of the scene of a mass public shooting in a digital instant, touching not just those who are at ground zero, but all of us, turning millions of us into survivors or witnesses to an atrocity in real time. Trauma is one word, yes. So is terror and chaos. In combat, they call it the fog of war, but we have no word for the fog of war in peacetime. You can see how profoundly the trauma of the fog of war in peacetime affects even those who are trained to face it. It's etched in the blank stare of the veteran police officer we met in chapter three, who faced with the brutal massacre of children in his hometown simply erased the memory. I took the perimeter, he insisted. You can hear it in the creak of the stairs late at night as the first cop through the door at the massacre at West Nickel Mines pads to his sleeping daughter's bedroom. You can feel the awful weight of it in the voice of a young police officer summoned to Santa Fe High School near Galveston, Texas in the moments after a shooting, ordered to hold the line to be part of a a force deployed in accordance with best police practices to stop the killing so that he and his comrades could stop the dying. All the while, his own mother, a substitute teacher at that school, lay dead or near dead inside. I'm supposed to protect and serve people, he later told his family attorney. I couldn't even protect my own mother. Indeed, in this fog of war and peacetime, we are demanding that our first responders, our police officers, our EMTs, our firefighters face horrors on their home turf 
as great as anything they would find on the bloodiest foreign battlefield. That's something we haven't asked American soldiers to do at least since the Civil War, and yet we demand that our first responders do it. We look away when they stumble out of the gun smoke and blood and double over retching in the bushes, bushes as police officers reportedly did when a combat veteran armed with a 45 caliber Glock 21, a cache of extended magazines he had smuggled across the state border from Nevada and a knife killed 12 people before killing himself at the borderline nightclub in Thousand Oaks, California on November 7th, 2018. Among the dead, as we'll see later in this chapter, was Telorfanas, an ex-sailor who already been traumatized just over a year earlier when he helped pull the wounded off the killing field below the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino in Las Vegas during what remains the highest casualty mass shooting in our history. The borderline that young man's mother and father, Mark and Susan told me, was supposed to be his haven his safe space. It's a grim measure of our time that a young military veteran had heroically faced combat twice in his life and both times it was at home. When responders found Tellorfanos' body discovered that not only had he been shot, he had also been stabbed once in the An indication that the coroner told his grieving mother that Tell had gone down fighting. It's deathly cold silence, but it gives his mother some shred of comfort to think that he didn't die afraid. I tell myself that Tell was so angry that this person was doing what he was doing that he just flew at him, Susan Orfanos tells me through her tears lapsing for just an instant into the present tense, a sign that the trauma is not, and perhaps never will be in the past. I don't want my son to be afraid, she says, it would hurt. And I try to tell myself that Tell would have been so angry, he would have confronted that man and it would have been over in seconds. Take a few steps back from ground zero in any of these attacks. And the fog of war and peacetime is every bit as poisonous and impenetrable. You needn't go far. Just travel a few yards down the hallway from the classrooms at Sandy Hook where children were murdered to another classroom where frightened children huddled, fearing that they would be next. What can you say to a father whose nine-year-old son is tortured by nightmares, who's facing years, perhaps decades of ther therapy to come to grips with the traumatic, mem traumatic memory of hearing gunshots and the awful silence between them? A child who was stalked in his sleep by the image of a man all dressed in black, his face obscured, pulling at his classroom door. You can tell him that it wasn't the murderer trying to get him, but rather a cop making sure that the door was locked, making sure that the child and his classmates were indeed safe before moving on to make sure other children were too. And that would be absolutely true. It was indeed a cop who was there only to protect him. But would that knowledge exercise the picture of a maniacal faceless killer all dressed in black that possesses this child's dreams? When your nightmares are forged out of gunmetal, they don't bend easily to fit the facts. And the fog spreads. There aren't enough police barricades or enough rolls of bright yellow police tape in the world to confine it to the perimeter of a crime scene. Not in a world so deeply interconnected as ours. Not in a world where news, imperfect and incomplete, can circle the globe in the time it takes a dying heart to stop beating. And it isn't just the mass media that spreads the fog. Consider this. When the cops finally made it into the charnel house that had been the Pulse nightclub, it wasn't just the blood and the stench of murder that knocked them back on their heels. It was the surreal sound of so many cell phones 
pockets left behind by those who had fled the massacre or still in the hands of pockets of those who couldn't, chirping, buzzing, ringing, playing a, mac a macabre merengue. And who was calling? Everyone they knew. When they found Telorifanos' body on the floor of the borderline nightclub, he still had his phone. There were over a thousand texts on it, his father tells me. There were a couple of hundred voicemails, people calling him from all over the country who knew him, asking him if he was okay. That's hundreds of people, perhaps more than a thousand from every corner of the nation touched in real time by the trauma of one death in one mass shooting. Multiply that by all the dead and all the wounded and all of those who've been spared in all the churches and nightclubs and synagogues and schools, all the malls and Walmarts and movie theaters. And you see how the trauma of these rare atrocities spreads like a virus across, across the globe. Indeed, the atrocity at the borderline just down the road from the Arfanos' home had already touched people across the country before Mark and Susan Arfanos had even learned that it had happened. They'd sent their son, they'd sent their son their usual goodnight text and gone to bed only to be awakened to their nightmare at 2 a.m. by a phone call from a close family friend on the other side of the country. Tells Godmother, who had just learned the massacre from news, they immediately flipped on the television and desperately called their son. His voicemail box was full, Susan tells me. In our hyper-connected digital world, linked by social media and the phones in our hands, the immediacy of the trauma is felt by thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps millions in an instant, even before the first breathless reporter arrives on the scene, even before the cops do sometimes. Twitter explodes, grainy cell phone videos punctuated by the sound of gunfire or of a terrified survivor weeping or screaming, ricochet around the world. It's horror with a hashtag. There is no context, no big picture. You can never make sense of the senseless. And when you're running for your life, you don't even try. There are just jagged shards of terror. Indeed, as we saw at Christchurch and at Pulse, sometimes the killers even broadcast themselves on social media to amplify the horror and to bask in it. And the fog of war and peacetime and the trauma that lurks in the mist spreads. One does not have to be a combat soldier in war, visit a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to experience trauma, psychiatrist and researcher Besser van der Kolk writes in the prologue to his landmark book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind and Body in the Healing of Trauma. He is writing specifically about those in the closest concentric rings to trauma survivors, their families, their friends and their acquaintances, but he notes, the effects radiate out from there, touching those who know them until at last it can affect our histories and our cultures. There is no place where this happens. This is not A crisis facing people in one place and only them. The heaviest burden is borne by people like Susan and Mark. But don't fool yourself. It touches all of us. All of us live in trauma. And all of us need to respond. I am honored and grateful that Susan and Mark 
Orfanos have agreed to join me here today. I have known few people in my life who approach these two people in terms of courage and conviction. Welcome, Mark and Susan. Welcome. That was hard to hear. It was hard to read, but somehow it was harder to hear. There's a, it is hard to hear. It's hard to hear. It's got to be far harder to live. We had a talk earlier today, Mark, you and I, um, kind of sketching out where we were likely to go with this. We talked a little bit about um, the hearing that you had uh, gone to yesterday and the emotional impact um, of that. And Susan's admonishment to you to not give in completely to the emotion. We had a discussion about that. You wanna, you wanna talk a little bit about what it is that we talked there, talk a little bit about the hearing and about what we talked about in terms of the power of, um, the power and significance of grief in this situation. Um, yeah, are we, we on mute, can you hear me? I can hear you, I can hear you. Um, so yesterday uh, in the California State Assembly, um, a bill uh, was discussed by the Health and Safety Committee of the California State Assembly. The bill was put forth by our State Assemblywoman, Jackie Irwin, the sole purpose of which was to um, protect uh, autopsy records of people that have been killed by violent crimes. Um, and I was, uh, I, I was asked to be one of two witnesses in favor of this. Uh, and the main reason I was there, quite frankly, was to try to put a human face on the impact that these crimes have. Um, and it's very, very difficult to be able to talk about the gruesome murder of your son, um, at least it is for me, talk about the gruesome murder of your son, um, in a um, in a sterile and academic sort of way, um, and unfortunately, it seems that often when we have these conversations, that's the nature of the conversation. Um, it's the nature of the conversation to to um, to have a, an academic back and forth. Um, there is an engagement of sophistry where people try to one-up each other with their points, forgetting that what we're dealing with uh, are human beings. Not only the human beings like Susan and I who are left behind, but human beings uh, that have been killed. They don't cease to be human beings. They don't cease to be persons. They don't cease to be individuals. They don't cease to be sons and daughters. And, and family members because they are, they are dead. Um, and that was, the, that was the, the impetus of, of my point. Um, just because someone is dead, I don't think that their specifics of their lives um, uh, should be dragged out into public. Um, and, uh, and when I was making my testimony, uh, I was unable to totally restrain the emotion. Um, 
And there was a couple of times where in the, in the middle of the, ter- uh, the, the testimony, I had to, to compose myself. Um, and then after the fact, uh, I found out that apparently the very nature of my emotional testimony was, was one of the factors that helped move legislators in our direction. Um, you mentioned that one of the legislators had a personal connection. One of the legislators, his daughter would often go there. There's a university up the street from us in the opposite direction of the borderline. And every Wednesday there was college night at the borderline and she would sometimes go there. And it just so happened that that particular evening, the daughter of this one legislator did not go. That was the night she did not go. And when he was sharing that fact with the other legislators, he did exactly what I am doing right now. He had to pause. He had to speak in measured terms. His voice broke a few times because he was able to make the very human connection that frankly, most people can't can't make. Um, but the, the trauma, because that's basically what I was referring to, this trauma is something that never ends. We have been told countless times or asked countless times, well, well you know, it's been X number of years. When are you going to get over it? And I, 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 just, I would just like to emphasize the fact that there are countless people out there with that mindset. They expect you to quote unquote, just get over it. And it's not something that you just get over. Um, There are a set of circumstances around your child being killed in a mass shooting that are different than losing your child in other ways. People who lose their children in traffic accidents or to disease or whatever. In each one of those cases, there is by society an active effort to mitigate those kind of deaths. And unfortunately, it's only in this country with shooting, with killing, with dying, where there is an active movement that reinforces the status quo that caused those deaths. I mean, think about it, it's the only time when people die where it is perceived as acceptable to have people die in order to quote unquote, secure some other right. Right, Susan has made this point a number of times and I'd like to bring Susan in on this. The idea that we are perfectly willing to legislate when it comes to tragedy, but we refuse to legislate when it comes to atrocities, to things that we do, to things that we have, the, the sins of our own commission and omission. This is something that you've raised in the past, Susan, um, with me. There's also um, an acceptable range of emotion and an unacceptable ra- range of emotion. We talked about that a little bit earlier today, too, Susan. Yes. Rage. Rage. Talk to me about rage. Yes. Rage seems to be an emotion that is, our society does not want to to see, does not want to hear. Um, And I think you made a good point earlier today where you said that expressing rage requires someone to potentially do something. I tell, tell and I were the volatile ones in our family. So I guess I've inherited some of his rage. He was very angry after Las Vegas. And I, I don't think any of us really understood that rage. It didn't make sense to us somehow. Um, and I am sorry for that, that I didn't do better about trying to understand it. But after he was murdered, 
that rage just seems to have collected itself inside of me from the very first day when I yelled at the reporters in the front of our house um, to now, because these deaths all by gun violence, whether it's suicide, homicide, mass shootings, which are actually a very small percentage of gun violence deaths in this country, but they are the most public. They're all perpetuated by a rhetoric, by a myth. And at the very bottom of it, and I think Dan Rather expressed it very well when he had an interview with Don Lemon a while back, where he said the crux of it, this is about money. This is about the gun and ammunition manufacturers. They make a lot of money and they're immune. There's a federal law that protects them from being responsible for the consequences of their products. The NRA, we're seeing them in New York court now where Wayne LaPierre said he felt unsafe, so he went and hit out on a 108-foot yacht. How nice yeah. that must the be. The only thing that can stop a good guy with a gun is a good guy with a yacht. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and Watts posted that from Moms Demand Action. As long as, the, as long as the yacht is far enough off the coast. Right. Yes. right exactly. And the legislators, you know, the Ted Cruz's, the Marco Rubio's, the Lindsey Graham's, they all collect money. This all comes down to money. So... Tell was murdered because of money. That there are so many guns in this country. And that's a large reason, that's a main reason why I'm so angry because it's preventable. Um, you, you, people, you know, the rhetoric on the other side says, well, guns aren't the problem, people are the problem. Well, as a friend of ours, Lonnie Phillips said, whose daughter was killed in the Aurora theater shooting, said, if people are the problem, why, why would you give them a gun? Mm -hmm. And so that's where a lot of my rage comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and we have found that it, rage makes people uncomfortable. A mother crying on television is much easier to deal with than one ranting and raving. You can distance yourself from pity. Yeah. And, and you had said something, you used the word pity. I, I don't want to be pitied. I know. I want, I want people like Ted Cruz and Cindy Hyde-Smith, I want them to be afraid of my rage. They underestimate my rage. And I want them to be afraid because then that might make some shifts in how they address this. So, and, and rage is, rage often gets me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> quite literally and i'm glad it does yeah. because this country i think needs people of your strength and your character um to be as present as um you are um there's a lot of us there's a lot of people we've now connected with across this country mm -hmm. that they, they have a rage and I think that rage is underestimated mm -hmm. by too many. Not only is the rage generous, but what's unfortunate really is, is the trauma is dismissed, quite mm -hmm. frankly. It is just absolutely dismissed. That's why Mitch McConnell after a mass shooting can go on TV and keep uttering the same thoughts and prayers every time in that monotone of his, um, because he has dismissed the trauma. Um, anybody who has experienced what we have experienced is very cognizant of the trauma. And you had talked about concentric circles. Right. Um, we are in the center of this and there are these concentric circles and we find that especially in those inner circles those people who know us but also knew our son um they share an element of that trauma but as you go out as you work your way outside to those outer circles the trauma somehow diminishes 
And because of the fact that trauma diminishes, it's dismissed. And as long as there is the dismissal of that trauma, I don't see um, any kind of effective action taking, taken to stop the trauma. But it, but the it diminishes as much as it becomes diffuse. Um, whereas it's not attached to a particular to a particular individual, it becomes sort of an ambient trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there needs to be some kind of attachment in order for that to turn to action. Mm -hmm. um, which is again one of the reasons why what you do is so heroic, because you become sort of a lightning rod for that. It's one of the reasons I've been so terribly impressed with with, with you both. Um, for exactly at, at the same time, you talk about how the, the circle gets bigger and it becomes ambient or, or diffuses. However, this has happened so many times in all over this country that those circles are now overlapping. It's no longer six degrees of separation. It's one. We have a family friend whose daughter um, knows three individuals that were killed in three separate mass shootings. At borderline that night, my son Tell was not the only one who'd been at Vegas. There were a lot more. He just happened to be the one that didn't make it that night. He, after Vegas, he had a lot of friends that struggled. Um, Tell went to therapy. Um, part of what's so painful to us is that he was starting to become himself again. The rage was kind of letting go. He was excited about his job. Um, he was laughing. He was happy again. He was our son again. And then November 7th happened. And he often supported other friends who had also been at Vegas. So there are countless others who in this area who were at both mass shootings and survived it. Their trauma continues. Um, part of the reason when we went to, to the hearing yesterday, and it's something we brought up, is that it's not just about the families. You release this information about how these individuals were killed, their multiple gunshots, what happens to their bodies. You have, there was over 200 people there that night. There is a survivor's guilt on part of some of those people. Others that were at both mass shootings. You release that. And it's at our community at large. It's not just the survivors from that night, it's the community at large. The next day after the shooting, we went through massive wildfires here. This, this community is at risk. And that's part of what we had to express at the hearing yesterday is our community at large is at risk. We know what happened to those from Parkland, to, to individuals committed suicide after, the father from Sandy Hook, this trauma is perpetual and it's, and it's, Mark said, it's being dismissed. They don't want to hear it. You might be surprised to find that a, a, a guy who's been a journalist for four decades um, would um, support the bill that you testified in favor of, Mark, but I do. And I do for a couple of reasons. One, because for legitimate is there are means of obtaining those. The public release of them in my mind um, would, as you so aptly demonstrated, grievously re-traumatize people who have never recovered from the initial trauma. And in terms of a societal benefit, and this is going to, uh, I think, Susan, maybe get, uh, get you started a little. Um, I don't see how it, it has any real advantage. If you were to turn around and release, for example, the autopsy photos of Sandy Hook, you are not going to convince a single follower of Alex Jones that those are real. Um, so you've accomplished nothing. And, and I know that uh, you have strong thoughts about Mr. Jones, Susan. <laughs> we have strong thoughts about a number of individuals in this country. Mm -hmm. No, he's, 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 a, 
He's a criminal. What he's done. Well, he's to an opportunist. He's an opportunist. Is, is what he is, which is it's unfortunate. But you know, I, I I don't want to digress too much into some of these personalities because frankly, sure. they're not they're not worth wasting our time over. Because as you alluded to, we're not going to convince any of those. Mm -hmm. folks. Right. It's like it's like you know some of these QAnon people. It doesn't matter what you tell them, you're not going to convince them. Um, you know, you can you can try to be as as supportive as possible while some of them work their way through this. It's like it's like any cult. You know, I think that I think that a lot of these these followers of someone like Alex Jones, it's like a cult. You know, and he is the cult figure. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I, let's let's not digress. You know, too too far into that. Um, I, I want to go back to to what you said. You know, having been a journalist for all this time and supporting this legislation. Um, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, and, but the fact is, this mission was very, very yeah. narrow. Right. It was very specific for precisely the reasons that you had sort of alluded to. Um, I understand. I appreciate the not not only the rights of the press, but the necessity of the press. Um, because let's face it. Quite frankly, there there are times when the, the government, you know, be it local or, or federal or police officers or people in official positions, they do things that maybe they shouldn't do. And mm -hmm. some of this would never be exposed if it wasn't for the fact that we indeed have, have the press. But with something so narrowly defined as, um, as this particular bill, um, it, it made it very, very difficult to hear some of the arguments on the other side, because their arguments are very generalized and they did not address the specificity of, of this. Well, and, and, and part of what what was difficult, as Mark said, to listen to the opposition yesterday, it's mostly uh, public defenders and, and the, the media. Um, so they were in, in opposition to this bill. Unfortunately, because our bill is, is so narrow, they brought up things which are absolutely valid, George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor, but this bill would not impact that. We right. as, I re as I understand the bill, it, 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 there are still mechanisms by which you can obtain. The key, the, the, the key was that if someone, as in our situation, the family still needs to apply to seal the records. Mm -hmm. So a family chooses, I know there are families that want their, they want the reports mm -hmm. released because they hope it has some impact. Right. Some of us do not believe it would have any impact if, as you mentioned, the slaughter of children at Sandy Hook made no difference. Our 27-year-old son bleeding out on the floor of a bar is not going to make a difference to anyone. And that's, so I, why expose either him or our family, our younger son? What, and Mark's 92-year-old Mark's father, what, he doesn't need to read that. So we're doing it to protect our family and our, and our friends and our community. They, it does, there's no benefit. Um, the newspapers always, they often try to speculate. Uh, and I, I, if there was any benefit that things would change, we would be the first one in line to release the information. Yeah. I wanna shift gears a little bit. Um, Susan, you made a, a very compelling point earlier today that I'd like to revisit. You talked about um, the way we view those who have died, those who have been killed in these atrocities. You suggested that when a soldier falls in war, we have uh, a tendency to automatically grant respect uh, to a degree that we don't give to those whose lives have been taken in these atrocities. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about what, what you meant when you were suggesting that? What I meant by that was when a soldier falls in war, 
they are given the respect and honor that they are due. They made a sacrifice. And if that's, that's right. They should be respected and honored. Their families are respected and honored. You don't disseminate the details about their death, the details, their wounds. You don't do that to someone. But especially in a mass shooting, as we talked about autopsy records, the newspapers want them. Uh, conspiracy theorists fuel, it fuels their speculations. Um, and the copycats, we know mass shooters do research on prior mass shootings. Um, and what we have found is, in some cases, the media is, uh, we, we have marks better at it than I am a respect for the media. Um, to be honest, in general, they have treated us with respect from the very first day, and, and we are grateful for that. That's not always the case. Um, but there have been instances, for example, one of our larger newspapers in the area um, at one point had a listing of the 12 that were killed. And for tell, they put who had the misfortune to be at new two mass shootings. I saw that when I was at work, I was, I'll say out of my mind at that. Um, you can imagine the language that flew out of my mouth. I got home and I called the editor of the newspaper and I, I got his voicemail and I just, I said, all you had to do was say he was an Eagle Scout, former Navy sea, sailor and beloved by his family. That's all you had to put. But you had to put, he had the misfortune to be at two mass shootings. Well, you know what? It wasn't him that was misfortune. The fact is that there was two men with weapons of war at two venues that wanted to kill people. That's the damn misfortune. But also, but also part of the point that she was making is that sometimes we forget to humanize these victims. They're just numbers and their names. Um, and one of the reasons she got so upset about this particular inc um, incident was because all the other 11 victims, they gave them a little bit of humanity. This person was going to school and doing this. And, and what really set her off is there was no reference to the person that Telemachus was. Um, and that's really what, what, what set her off because often we forget about the individual personalities, about the human beings. They're just a number, they're just a name on a page. Or they're uh, just evidence. Right, or they're, or they're evidence in a, in a, a, a criminal investigation. Yeah. Or exist only in relation to the particularly atrocious event. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's, it's and you know, Mark and I have had numerous conversations. There's all the hash, as you referenced, the hashtag strong. I, I, we understand why they do it. Um, the strange thing is, is Tell's initials are the same as our city. T.O. T.O. Thousand Oaks. Yeah. As is our younger son. And we, we have a hard time seeing that. And uh, Tell, Tell was a strong man. He was a strong man. Um, and that's what we want him to, to be remembered as a good man, a strong man. His family loved him. He loved his family and his friends. But not that he had the misfortune to be at two mass shootings and didn't survive the second. And uh, so, as Mark said, they, they dehumanize them. Um, they put the statistics out. And all we can remember is, is his face and his smile and his laugh. And, and those people that love him, that's what they remember too. I'm sorry, but he had a very goofy laugh. That's yeah. why I was, I was smiling. Yeah. You know, he was he was he was a fairly large. He was six, he was about six two, um, but he had this very high pitched laugh when he would laugh, and it was it was just goofy. And that's one of the reasons when she talked about remembering his laugh, I I had to smile. You know, and that quite frankly is one of the few things that um, kind of gets us through the day. 
because as you'd allude to, we don't want him constantly to be referred to as the person that was killed here. We don't want him defined by his death, you know? And unfortunately in these instances, that's what happens. People are defined by their death. This person killed there, this person killed there. No, my son is a person who was, you know, a, a Navy veteran. My son was a person who was a, an Eagle Scout. My son was a person who coached young kids in track. My son was a person um, who helped uh, disabled kids. You know, that was my son. That was my son. So, you know, our plea is remember the human being, remember the person, remember the individual. Um, don't define him by his death. And the, Please it, don't do that. We, you know? we, we've met so many people, some of them I've never actually physically met. And to be honest, that's, I try not to think about how, where and how they died, even though I know. We have a family who's from Tennessee. Her young son, Akila, was killed, but he was an environmentalist. He was a he was a rapper. He liked his music. He loved his family. A young woman from Texas, from Santa Fe Springs, she wanted to do ASL. She was what, 14? She was 14. I remember, so I listened to the stories of other mothers and I, I, that's what I think of. Oh, well, this person wanted to teach ASL. This one was into music. This one was into art. Whatever those things are, that's, that's what I hold in, inside of me. This one was a reporter. She loved purses. Those, those are the things I hold because that's their life. And that's to me is what's the most important thing is their lives. Their deaths are tragedy and we need to do what we can to stop it, to, to stop that so that others don't end up being like us. Without ever losing sight of the lives of. Yeah. yeah. It's the lives. What, what can we do? What I know you have strong ideas on this. What can we do? We can get federal laws. We have a patchwork of laws in this country by different states. We talked about earlier, extended magazines are not legal in California, but the murderer tells murderer Drove to Arizona and got no, them. He got it through the mail. He got them through the mail. He got through the mail. Um, we need to have this patchwork needs to go away. There needs to be federal legislation. If people are the problem, then don't let them have guns. If over ninety percent of the American population supports universal background checks, over ninety percent across the across the aisle, including most gun owners, including gun owners. 90% pass universal. As it, you guys well know, I'm a gun owner. Really? I know. But if you're a legitimate gun owner that's not going to go out and do something, I, we need gun owners to say, to stand up and say universal background checks. If someone is going through a rough patch, you don't let them have a gun both to keep them safe and others safe. You don't need weapons of mass destruction. When we met with the FBI after borderline, the shirts that the FBI is wearing, the insignia is the WMD team, the weapons of mass destruction team. Military grade weapons do not belong in civilian hands. They are only existing to kill as many people as quickly as possible. So there are very specific things. It doesn't take a genius. Gun owners that are legitimate, like you, that go and do hunting, whatever you do, you keep, you lock the safe storage, for God's sake, safe storage. How is that controversial? How, how many children with the, with the surge in gun sales since last year, and yes, last month was even bigger. First time gun owners. Every day, children die because they get access to a loaded weapon in their home. How stupid is that? There's this moment in time 
where I would, I know thousands and thousands of families go, well, if I would have just taken the bullets out, if I would have just put it in a gun safe. But that moment is gone forever for those families. There's that alternate universe that they can never move back into where their child is alive. That, that makes no sense to me. And yet the rhetoric from too many people is that that will infringe on my rights. Well, what about our son's right to life that came first and our right for the pursuit of happiness as a family of four that came before the second amendment. And, and also the, the whole argument about infringement of second amendment, that is such a, that is such a red herring. That is, that is so bogus um, because that's always the fallback position. When you say to, to someone, um, do, you, do you really need a Thompson submachine gun? They say, well, if I can't have a machine gun, it's infringement on my rights. But of course, in 1934, as you probably know, those were outlawed. Okay, and the NRA was one of the supporters of outlawing that. Um, and, you know, when someone says, I really need to have a semi-automatic assault rifle with magazines that can hold 30 bullets, there is no rational reason for that. And their fallback position is always, well, it's my, it's my right. You know what we're asking for? We're just asking, first of all, a little bit of humanity. Let's start from that position, a little bit of humanity and a little rational thought, all right? And let's stop with the fear mongering. How often do you hear whenever there's gun legislation, it's a gun grab. How often do you hear that term? Okay, over and over and over again. When you want someone to say, um, you know, let's not uh, allow silencers, okay? How do you justify having silencers, which the NRA has done? How do you do that, you know? Um, and well, you're infringing on my rights. Um, I think what we have to do is we have to admit that there is an entire segment of society, and, it, and frankly, it's a rather small, but it's a very vocal one, that will not give an inch. And therein lies, therein lies the problem. And that's, that, that I think is very much an, an issue. I think the idea that uh, when you have um, a small minority of even a minority of gun owners mm -hmm. who become obstructionist, right. who to any common sense recommendation reply, well, I'll give up my gun when you pry my cold dead fingers around it mm -hmm. after a while. A lot of the American people are get pretty close to ready to say, okay, have it your way. Well, unfortunately, but Seamus, the problem is, is they have their guns over our son's dead body. Right. That's true. That's true. So it's not them. They think they're immune. It's over too many dead bodies of our children. That's how they hold their guns. And I, that's where my rage comes. Mark and Susan, I think we've reached the end of the time we've got. I am, once again, uh, I am amazed by you two. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Seamus, and thank you for trying to shed a little light on um, on this uh, this epidemic, this this tragic epidemic this country's gone through. Thank you for shedding light on that. Appreciate it. Um, um, <laughs> thank you guys for um, being on this. This has been such a such a powerful, and I think I would say one of the most powerful episodes we've had on this podcast. Um, to Mark and Susan, I everything you said just resonated. Um, almost ten years ago, actually. Uh, my cousin who I grew up with, um, grew up with new, we grew up down the street. Like her parents are my godparents, like best friends um, died uh, because of a gun um, in the wrong hands. And 
it's something that like even if I it's not the same but like even if I feel a fraction of what you guys feel I'm just so sorry I'm so 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 sorry and yeah it's an epidemic it's an epidemic that re it's touching too many lives and the way you even said that there's a first it's one degree away from everyone in this country and that's that's a problem <laughs> that's a problem that is such a problem um Lance, I'm, I'm sorry that you can relate to us in that regard, because that means you've suffered a loss. You know what it feels like. And I'm sorry for you. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. And just thank you for being on this. This has been so, um, I mean, just hearing you guys talk is just, uh, I hope everyone who listens to this really just like sits with this and sits with this as a country too. We need to, we need to do better as a country. I mean, and not, not individuals, just together, we need to do what we can. Both, both lands. We need to do better as a country. We need to do better as individuals. Yeah. Yes, the, the two are definitely intertwined. Yeah. Very true. Lance, can I, can I put a good word in for independent bookstores? Yes, please. What if you guys have anything <laughs> to say about independent bookstores? Please go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna Sorry, Seamus, I'm digressing here. Um, <laughs> but I, but Susan and I are voracious readers. We read because we love it as entertainment. We read because we love it uh, for the information that we glean. Um, we, um, our son, as I think we alluded to before, was a voracious reader. Um, I just want to share something with you. When he was, uh, when he was about eight, he got the the Harry Potter book that was released that particular yeah, year. Yeah, the fourth one. It was like five or 600 pages. He got it, he came home, he read it in one day, in one sitting, wow. he read that book. That's the kind of reader he was. I remember, Sometimes when he was a teenager, he, he would go into the bathroom and he'd be taking a shower. I'd knock on the door because the water had been running for 30 minutes, whatever. I opened the door and all I could see is his silhouette through the shower curtain. He's sitting with a book reading in the shower. You could <laughs> That's what kind of voracious reader he was. But we had, there's several bookstores that were here when he was growing up. Um, and, we used to, and we used to go to these independent bookstores for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we just really liked the atmosphere. It was yeah. always very low key. There was always um, chairs, <laughs> usually secondhand chairs you could sit down in and you could read in. So um, please, if anybody's listened to this, um, you know, please make sure to go to independent bookstores. They are very, very important. Um, and we, we avoid um, Amazon, no disrespect to Amazon, but we avoid Amazon and all that because I think they are depriving us of the experience of going into an independent bookstore, getting to know the owners of those um, and, and, and striking up relationships because it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It really is. So yeah. best of luck to you and, and, your, and your story. No, I mean, what you're saying is just like the memories and the community you make there is just so important. Yeah. Yes. And yes. Very much. Um, Seamus and Susan, do you guys have anything to say to him? Let Susan go first because I think she has a great one, doesn't she? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I actually order books from an independent bookstore in Canada, in Quebec, mm -hmm. called Grown Books. I'll give them a shout out um, because they are the main bookstore that's near one of my favorite authors, Louise Penny, who I think, Lance, you said you do a lot of her books as well. Um, she and I have actually communicated. We've met because in one of her books, she talks about a shootout in a warehouse. And in that book and in her stories, it brings a humanity. And I think that's a lot of what Mark and I try to focus on. It's not just a slaughter. There was humanity of people trying to help each other. And that's that had a lot of impact on me to read that. And I think that's something that throughout all this trauma and everything else, there is a humanity that we have to hold on to. This is, to Seamus's point, this should not be a war down the street from our house. This, there's a humanity that, that, are, that is forgotten. And our- Continue the story about it. Anyway, Louise. 
so Louise Penny is one of my favorite authors and uh, so she I do everything through an independent bookstore now because so I'll be using Skylight books too to order books so thank you oh no yes and if you ever and please come and visit and let us know when you come and we'll roll out the red carpet we'll do it I, I can't personally I can't wait to come visit I personally <laughs> can't wait to come visit and I'll tell you why I love independent bookstores and I like Skylight it's because we talk about them as being locally owned okay they are owned by the locality they are a point of community I can't tell you how much I've learned from the kind of conversations I've had with readers that can only happen in a place like Skylight or other, um, other, other independent bookstores where the patrons, the readers feel a sense of ownership and place. I learn about every place I go and I learn a lot about myself and, and, and the communities I'm visiting when I go to those places. And I will tell you, every one of my books has grown out of conversations I've had in places just like yours. Um, they're national treasures. And I think they need to be recognized as such. And more importantly, they are foundational blocks in a community. And if we're gonna confront this deadly epidemic or any of the other challenges that we as a people face, it's going to begin with a sense of community that you guys embody. So I feel very strongly about, I, I, I wish you guys the best and I can't wait to get out there and actually be there in, 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 in what passes for my flesh. <laughs> can, I, can I give an amen on that? Amen. <laughs> and we'll be here when you guys are ready to come out. We'll for everyone who's listening too. Like we'll be we'll be ready with all books galore. Um, and um, well, this has been a wonderful episode and a powerful episode. And I just I want to reiterate: this has been um, the book is from a taller tower. The Rise of the American Mass Shooter, which you can buy right now on our, you can pre-order, right? It has mm -hmm. yep. pre-order on our website, uh, www.skylightbooks.com. You could call in too and pre-order. And it's this has been Seamus McGraw and Mark and Susan Orfanos. And just one, one last thing before we go, is there anywhere for our listeners who want to like do, reach out and help out with the gun control, um, with just with legislation on gun control, there is there are a number of organizations. Um, Giffords mm -hmm. is doing a lot. The Brady Foundation, and there are some smaller organizations that we work with. Guns mm -hmm. Down America, mm -hmm. Survivors Empowered, who are on the ground at mass shootings to support survivors and victims. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a number of organizations that are led by survivors. And that's, if you can, they're out there, support them. They need your help because until this is done, we're gonna need them. Right. And let me just, just emphasize just for a moment about Survivors Empowered. Um, the day that, the day that um, Tell was killed, they called us the day of, and they said, um, we wanna let you know what is going to happen. We want to let you know what's going to happen in terms of the press. We want to let you know what's going to happen in terms of conspiracy theorists and trolls. And everything they said came to pass. Their emphasis, um, as much as they, they, they want some, some form of, of gun control legislation, their emphasis is on the people that have been immediately impacted by gun violence um, because they understand one of the basic most important aspects of this is the humanity that is um, that is impacted um, and it goes on forever and they understand that. So if you can somehow support um, survivors empowered, um, again, their emphasis is on the people 
not the legislation. As important as the legislation is, their emphasis on the human beings that are suffering. Yeah, so support them. We'll make a little. We'll make a list too in our description for the episode of these are. Of thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Definitely um, reach out if you're listening. But thank you again for a great episode, and just to everyone listening, thank you for listening and uh, supporting us. And yeah, thank you again, and have a great rest of your day, everybody. And you, Lance. Thank you. Thank you, Lance. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.